Good morning again. 45 seconds. I missed you. I hope you missed me. Here I'm back again with the same microphone. Um, no, I'm excited. Seriously, what we're getting into today is one of my favorite things to talk about, and uh, I think it's going to be really, really good. Let me take you back to like nine years ago. I don't know where you were nine years ago. Nine years ago, I was sitting in a college chapel. My palms were sweaty. My knees were weak. I didn't have spaghetti, but like follow the rest of the Eminem song into that. Like I had all those things. Like I was truly losing myself. I was just like worried sick because there was this thing in my pocket that felt like everyone could see what's in there. And it's like burning a hole in it at the same time. And about 50 yards away from me was my, I hoped, future wife, Lindsay. So she's 50 yards away from me. Her back is turned to me. I've got this thing in my pocket that I've spent months saving for, preparing for. Uh, the excitement is, is brimming up in me. And at the same time, I'm like, what if she says no? Like, this would be the most awkward situation. And it's all recorded, right? I'd be viral. That was my worry. But, but luckily... I kept the courage and I started to kind of hop and skip over there. I was so giddy. And on the way, I'm like rehearsing through. I had probably written like two paragraphs of just incredible content, right? Just incredible. Like even if she didn't want to marry me, she would have because of how good those words were. You know what I'm saying? Like it was that kind of speech. And I was getting ready to go down on one knee and pull this thing out of my pocket, this one ring, and then to kind of offer it to her as a way to say like, Let's do this, baby. Like, let's get married. Like, let's let's live together for life. Let's let's serve God together for life. And so, I'm on my way over there, and, and the nerves kick in. Right, they take over. And so, I kind of turn on one knee. I'm like, I'm not even fully in front of her. I'm like, kind of halfway in front of her. And I was like, uh, uh, uh. I was wondering if you would marry me. That's literally verbatim what I said. And she's like, totally shocked and. She said yes, by the way, uh, just in case you didn't know that. But here's our engagement picture a couple weeks after that. But, man, I remember just, like, what immediately happened, though, in that moment. We were engaged, and then I realized, oh, shoot, I've got to wait a year and a month to actually marry this woman. Like, it w maybe that sounds good for you if you're a planner. You're like, oh, thank God I got that much time. But I want, I was like, can we get married next week? Like, I'm ready to do this. I want to make sure that you don't back out of this. And, and a year feels too long to think about it, right? So I was like, man, I would love to, uh, love to talk about moving that up. Is what we, so we started having these discussions. And as it was, we got married in, eight, or, uh, sorry, engaged in April of 2013. And we were planning to get married in May of 2014, which nowadays sounds like a ton of time. But I'm a big fan of short engagements, I've learned. Like, if you're, it's the right person, you need to lock that in. So I started to talk to her and kind of lean on her and talk to my parents. It's like, hey, I think we really should get married, like, this year. Like, this year would be a great time to get married. And so Lindsay, because she's gracious and uh, apparently it was not a hill she wanted to die on, was open to the idea of getting married in December. And so that's when we did. We got married December 28th, 2013. And it was beautiful, beautiful ceremony. But I can remember from April till December, the absolute pain of waiting in the middle of those two days. You know what I'm saying? Like when you get, if you've ever been engaged or been married or are married, you remember like the moment you get engaged, it's kind of like a, a deposit. You're like, all right, we are actually doing this. This is not just talk. We're really doing this. And then that waiting period is painful because you kind of feel married, Right but you're not actually married. You're in this weird kind of in-between space. And that killed me. Like I'm not a good person. I'm not very patient. And so I just 
over and over again. I was like, can we move it? Can we move it? And then ended up in December. But I remember that middle space. And it's funny because even if you don't relate to that specific example, every single one of us literally I can guarantee has been in a place, or maybe you're in one right now, where you feel like you're living in the middle, like in between things. Like it's already something, but it's not quite something. Or it's already been promised, but you haven't fully seen the promise. Or uh, we just sang that earlier, right? Like there was this moment on the cross, but it's kind of pre-resurrection. There's three days in the tomb, like we exist in the middle. One kind of biblical scholar puts it this way, that as Christians, people who follow Jesus in this world, we are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. Easter people living in a Good Friday world where you know that, that, that you have a relationship with your maker and, and, and he's redeeming all things and he's going to restore all things. And yet there's sin and there's cancer. There's COVID, there's, there's students that struggle. There's people in your world who are not quite right with God. Like there's all this dissonance and tension that you and I live with. And, and kind of final movement of this series, we're talking about what it means to be restored. And the main question we're going to ask these next couple Sundays is where's is the world headed? Because if we know like creation, fall, redemption, we know that at the end, if you skip to the end of the story, right before your index in your physical Bible, there's a book called Revelation that points to the question, where's the world headed? Where is this thing going? Where, what direction is history going? And before we read this letter we're about to read, you got to remember where it is. Like in, in the setting we're in, John is a disciple of Jesus who's been exiled by the Roman Empire to this small, no-name Mediterranean island full of prisoners called Patmos. And you can go there today. That still, all that stuff still exists. And in Patmos, John has this moment where, and he doesn't even necessarily say how long he's been there, but he has this divine revelation, this vision that comes from Jesus, that comes from like the risen Lord. He kind of gets a, a, a chance to peel back the layer of heaven and see into the future, but also speak to the current situation. And if you look at Revelation 21, if you have a Bible or device, I'd encourage you to pull that out. We're going to interact with a bunch of the different verses in this first kind of chunk. But in Revelation 21, verse 1, listen to the revelation that John gets here in this moment. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order, old way of doing life. It's passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, which John does for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. Think about Jesus on the cross, right? It's finished. It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Notice he doesn't say they will be my employees. 
They're, they're not even just my servants or my slaves. They are my children. It's an identity. It's, it's going back to the garden. They will walk with me. They'll be my children. And verse 8 takes a really dramatic turn. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. We're going to revisit that last part because it's a huge turning point, obviously, for John, because I'm tracking with John the first seven verses. I'm like, wait, what? I've lied before. So is this me? Or, or, or maybe you're like, I haven't done any of those things. I'm, I'm exempt. Like, thank the Lord that he put that in there. We're going to get there. But before we do and, and kind of walk through these eight verses together, I need to give you two disclaimers, two things that are really going to help us as we study this revelation of John, as we study this letter. Number one is John's goal, not mine, but like the apostle John's goal was not to establish when Jesus was coming back. I'm just going to let that sit for like 10 seconds, right? The, the goal of Revelation is not to give us like code necessarily for like a timeline for when Jesus comes back. Because here's what I know. Every single person who's predicted the return of Jesus has been thus far wrong. <laughs> like, And the guys who make money off of it, they just keep moving the date farther out, right? Like, So we know you can use Revelation for that if you want, but that's not John's intention. That's not why it's in the scriptures. It's not to establish the when. Even Jesus kind of lets out all the air of this by saying, none of you will know the day and the hour. And even still, uh, we have a desire to think, is it now? Is it soon? Is it soon? And the answer to is it soon is yes. And it's totally relative. <laughs> is it soon? Yes. Is Jesus coming soon? Yes. Is, is the day near? Yes. Could it be in my lifetime? Maybe. Could it be in five lifetimes from now? Maybe. I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm, I don't have that divine revelation that John had, but his point is not necessarily to establish the when and the chronological timeline. The second disclaimer is that unfortunately, for, for some of you, you're like, I'm trying to figure out how to leave this room right now because I don't really want to read about Revelation. And those of you are like leaning in, you're like, I can't wait for this. Here's the thing, I'm going to let you down off the front. Like, we will not be able to cover the entire letter of Revelation in, in a couple weeks. It takes way more work than that. But I will tell you, our focus and the direction of our time is answering that question, where's the world headed? And talking about restoration, how the future things uh, really do matter in this life. And if you read through, even we skipped literally 21 chapters, essentially, of the revelation to get to where we are today. But John's, John's letter, really, these prophecies all throughout Revelation, they speak to two unique things. And this is also important to catch. Number one, John is writing to address and confront and speak to present realities his readers would have faced. I mean, think about it. If you are facing a Domitian kind of murder campaign from the emperor of Rome, wondering, will I have a job? Will I make it through next week? Am I going to get dragged out of my house church into a Roman temple and forced to worship there? Your concern obviously is for the future, but you're also wondering, how does this speak to me right now? And John's revelation laced within it has a bunch of indictments on on people who kind of succumb to the empire instead of lordship to Jesus. And he's trying to encourage them as well to say, like, this is not all there is. But John also does, especially what we just read, speak to future realities. He is talking about a new heaven, a new earth. He is talking about when, when the world is headed somewhere and God sees this, this story step into its next chapter, 
Uh, it's really important to remember it's also about the future, that, that suffering will end, that tears will be unnecessary, that mourning will not happen anymore, that pain will not be experienced by us anymore. It's this kind of completion, this new heaven, new earth, this back to Eden type reality. And again, context matters because John is sitting in exile, handwriting this letter and trying to sneak it off this island somehow and get it distributed to the Jesus communities of his day. Now, in first service, it made me feel really old because no one knew the end of this phrase, but I have a lot of belief in you. Okay, I have, a, I have a lot of faith in you right now. Has anyone heard the phrase, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly? Okay, perfect. Okay, thank you, Diane. I appreciate that. The old person, nice. I don't know what that says about me, but I'll take it. I, I remember growing up with this phrase, right? It was like, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. And John's point in having Revelation written the way it is and why we're even looking at it for a couple weekends is that the more heavenly minded you are, the more earthly good you are. Let me say that one more time. The more heavenly minded you are, the more earthly good you are because it's people who have a future vision. It's Easter people living in a Good Friday world that actually change things because it's not temporal solutions. It's not quick fixes. They don't get bent out of shape about little things. They actually have a future mind and a vision ahead of them. Lindsay and I were laughing a few weeks ago because I had this small kind of spider crack in my windshield and uh, it's one of the many cosmetic problems with my car, but it was the one that didn't bother me too much. <laughs> I, I, I kind of had this little spider crack, and eventually it grew to be four inches wide, six inches, eight inches. It just kept getting bigger and, and kept becoming it, like a growing issue as, as I was driving. And I was like, I wonder if today's the day that I'm going to get wet. You know what I mean? Like, that's what I was thinking. It was like pouring rain. I'm like, I wonder if today's the day just water starts to trickle through my dashboard. And so I figured out I probably should get a new windshield. So I get a new windshield. It's like a day after this. We're riding in my car, and Lindsay's like, this feels like a brand new car. Like, this feels, I can see everything. There's no haze. There's no streaks. It's like super clear. You don't have your massive annoying crack on the left side. It's like a brand new thing. And, and I, I, I'd say that because I looked at my rearview mirror and my rearview mirror looks like a dirt bike track. Like somehow, like the, the windshield in the back, I could care less about it. Like, if, especially when you drive in Michigan, you get that like slow drip of brown slush. And I'm like, that's fine. Like, I don't care about it. As long as I can kind of see out of the back, I'm more worried about the front. You, you feel me? Like try, just for fun, try this illustration. Go home and only look in the rearview mirror on the way home from church, right? All of you will be on a wreck up Iron Center Avenue. I'll just wave like, hey guys, you did what I said I, you should do. Like if you do that, it's a, it's a disaster. <laughs> Literally is fatal maybe. It's a crash waiting to happen. And this is John's point in Revelation, right? Look to the future. You, the past is important, but if you live in the rearview mirror, you will crash and burn, right? And so he's saying, again, even if you're in the middle, have that future view, have that vision of what is to come. And I think that's why he adds that, that really awkward verse in verse eight. I think that's why he puts this there because he talks about the victorious. He's talking about people who persevere and even when the empire crushes their faith that they stick with Jesus. They, they, they go all in on him and, and they sold, sell their life out to him and they follow him and they surrender to him. And the people who don't are in verse eight. He, saw, he says, cowardly people. They lack courage or unbelieving. They've given up on faith or 
vials and they're crude or murderers and they kill people or sexually immoral and their sexuality's bent out of shape with the way of Jesus or magic arts which place uh, magic experiences and and other things above experiences with God or idolatry which is putting other gods or liars which is being deceptive and and bending the truth with people and maybe even to the ones we love he's saying it's those people that go to the fiery lake of burning sulfur which I have no idea uh, what that would even mean or what it necessarily looks like because I have not been there. I, I, it's just something I'm speculating about. But John's point is that those vices, like th- this is a common device used in the New Testament. If you've read other parts of the Bible, you, you've seen stuff like this where it's like massive lists of sins. You're like, whoa, chill. Like you could just say sin. I get your point. But John is specifically calling out sin patterns, flesh patterns, things that kept them from living the life we're talking about in their specific context and community. So these are all things. These are not just like, why'd you, why'd you pick magic arts, John? That seems kind of random. Like, why are you picking that? Or lying or, or even some of these things that feel like they don't hurt other people. Why are those things included? And he's saying, what you're doing is settling for a broken world. You're settling for a middle. My whole revelation God has given me is to say that there's something better. There's a better life and you can experience it now and in the future. And that's what we do. When you, when you ask that really annoying question, what do you do in the middle? What do you do in the already not yet space? Often what we end up doing is settle for a broken world. We settle for the pleasures that, that we can see, taste, and touch when God is so much more for us. What do you do in the middle? And the way that uh, it's helpful to think about this sometimes visually and the way I want to give this to you is talking about this idea of, of living in this current age and then age to come. And so there's a diagram. I just want to flip that up on the screen for you. So, so if you look on the far left, it's this age. And if you skip ahead, it's the already and not yet. And we are in that middle space. We're in this weird divine middle space, but there's an age to come. When you could say that's the second coming or the resurrection of the dead, I'm not, again, sure your theories don't necessarily matter as much as knowing where you are, right? So the already, not yet is is an important thing to look back. And what I love about it is how John describes when when the future arrives, when he describes this new heaven and new earth. Look at just a couple of things he says. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people. He will dwell with them. I mean, this, this is Eden language. Right, This is Adam and Eve walking with their creator in the garden. No scarcity, no pain, no death, just unbroken, beautiful relationship with God. Look at verse 5 is the other clue he gives us to what this will be like. He says, he who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything, say this with me, I'm making everything new, right? It's, this is the Greek idea, kainos, and kainos is like, not just new as in like, I got a new car, it's better than my old one, or new windshield, it's better than my old one. New is like fresh, unprecedented, brand new substance. Like think about something you've never seen before. Like I saw the, like, the first time I saw a Tesla on the road and it was next to me and it sounded like it wasn't on. I was like, I've not seen that before. My 2005 RAV is quite loud. You can hear me coming. Like you, you didn't hear that guy coming. It was brand new for me. I was like, wow, this is a new thing. And then riding in one, I was like, where's your dashboard? And the guy clicks on like a massive iPad. I was like, oh my gosh, this is new. Like this is all new to me. It's that idea, kinos, like behold, I'm making something brand new. 
What's powerful about this word, Paul uses this word in 2 Corinthians 5. You may know the verse, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. He's a kainos, a brand new thing, not just a repaired version of the old you, but a brand new you. This is baptism. This is salvation. This is how God works. So if that's true, if the new is on the way and it's somehow still here, what do you do in the middle? Sorry to keep asking, but that's the right question, right? What do you do in the middle? Now, I love a good, just massive bowl of ice cream in Grand Haven on the summer day, right? I, I love that. That is a great perk of life in Michigan. But, but is that all? Is that, is that like pleasure? Is that the, the point, the pinnacle, the, the full arrival of new and better in real life? I, we had Lennon about 10 months ago, and I remember holding her for the first time, and it was like, I've never felt something this great before, right? This is a beautiful feeling, but is that all that there is? I mean, just like you, I love a great batch of just fried vegan wings at downtown Grand Rapids before a concert, right? <laughs> You're like, what? I didn't even know they made those. But is that all there is, food, concerts? entertainment? Is that, is that the height of pleasure? Is that the height of life or graduating college or high school? Is that like the height of, of arriving as a person? Is that the best it's ever going to be? And John would say over and over again, there's actually better than that. Those things are just glimpses, small signposts along the way to this coming kingdom and this coming new heaven and earth. He talks about exactly what that will be like in verse seven. He says, those who are victorious will inherit all of this water of life. Earlier he talks about the crown of life, the tree of life, the, the book of life. He's trying to point out that in the new heaven and new earth, it is the fulfillment of true, lasting, beautiful life with God. Back to Eden. It's this full restoration of all things beautiful. Let me ask you the question again. What do you do in the middle though? What are you, what are you supposed to do? It's, it's just as wait and get by on ice cream in Grand Haven. <laughs> like, what are you supposed to do with this? Like, how are you and I supposed to read the end of the story and live different tomorrow? Well, as you read through this revelation, as you read through the gospel stories, I think two things become really clear. And Jesus was super clear on both of these things. The first is when you don't know what to do in the middle, there's, there's always two things you can do. And the first is embrace the gospel for yourself. Embrace the gospel for yourself. Now, that is beyond church attendance. That is beyond group attendance. That's beyond serving. That's about beyond giving. That's, about, that's way beyond having all the right theological boxes checked. Embracing the gospel for yourself means you recognize that you need the gospel and you allow the gospel to soak into your life. I mean, this pa these past two weeks, I've been on a journey right now and, and God is just showing me over and over again, I need the gospel it doesn't matter if I'm a pastor or I stand up here and talk about the scriptures. There is a need I have every single day when my feet at the floor. Jesus, I need your good news. I need it. It's for me. It's for me just as much as for anyone else. And the second is extending that to others. Some of us are so bored in our faith because we don't do this. It's like, man, I embraced the gospel for myself a long time ago, but it's just kind of like sitting here. It's dead. It's, it's not active. It's not adventurous. It's not alive. And by extending it to others, maybe for you, it's like, okay, I'm going to take a few of these Easter cards and hand them out. I don't know what your thing is, but like extending it to others has a way of activating us. And even in the middle, you're like, I don't know what my next career move is. Embrace and extend. 
I don't know like how God's going to do this thing in my marriage, or I don't know how God's going, how this kid's going to end up in life. But I know I can do two things: embrace and extend. I don't know where the world is going. Feels like it's chaos, and I don't even want to watch the news anymore, right? Like you may be in that boat. What what can you do in the middle? Embrace and extend. It's free. <laughs> like cost you nothing, but it, it will cost you everything. Embrace and extend over and over again. This is the beauty of, of the resurrection itself. Like in a couple of Sundays, we'll gather in spaces like this to celebrate Easter, this resurrection moment in history. And the resurrection is the hinge point of human history. Why? Because it literally connects the present to the future. It's the fact that you can experience the salvation of Jesus right now in your life, but you also can experience that for eternity. You also can experience that as something that you are destined to have, right? This is the beauty of the resurrection. Story comes to mind, and, and I remember first time I heard this, it just hit me when we're talking about what we're talking about. There's a Scottish chaplain named Scott McDonald. And Scott McDonald, towards the end of World War II, was actually captured in a Nazi prison camp. He was lopped in with a bunch of other American prisoners of war. And like you and like me, it was a, it was a struggle. It was constant harassment, terrible conditions, bad food, and not knowing when is this ever going to end, if it ends. And so he's in the American camp, and he finds out kind of a camp that's kind of a couple yards away from theirs, connected by this small little fence. There's another Scottish chaplain who's, who's lopped in with the British side, these prisoners of war from, from the UK. And they kind of find out each other. They both speak Gaelic, which is kind of this unique, kind of ancient Scottish language. And they both can speak it. And they quickly find out that Germans can speak Italian. The German soldiers could speak French. They could speak, obviously, German. They could speak English. But they didn't know how to speak Gaelic. It was like just gibberish to them. And so they would come together and kind of share the news from the day. They had a shortwave radio in both and, and often would hear news from Scotland or other places in the, in the camp. And so they would get together and just kind of swap stuff and how's, how's your camp, how's, how's mine? And one day, Scott McDonald hears on his shortwave radio in the barracks that there's actually liberation coming, that the Germans have officially put in their surrender to end World War II. And obviously he's elated. I mean, he's so excited. But the first thing he does, he runs to this fence and his friend, this other Scottish chaplain, runs to the other side and he starts to begin to share in Gaelic, like the Germans have surrendered, the Germans have surrendered, the war is over. Like we're, we're gonna be free men. And he writes this reflection uh, kind of on the heels of that moment. He says this, for the next three days, we were still prisoners. The, the guards still pointed guns at us, but we walked around as if we were free men with smiles on our faces. We didn't complain about the food anymore. We didn't hate the guards anymore. We actually felt sorry for them. On the fourth day, the guards were gone. They'd gotten the news and opened the gates, but we had already been liberated when we heard the news. That reflection hits me because not only did the news free Scott McDonald, but the news was liberating in the midst of what felt like an endless cycle, an endless prison camp, an endless war. So what do you do in the middle? Just like Scott McDonald does, he embraces the good news and he extended it 
to others. He said that as that news started to trickle out, the other, the British side, Scottish chaplain ran back and the, and the whole kind of group of guys who were in the courtyard started screaming with joy, singing songs, cheering. And the Germans are like, what are you doing? Like, you guys are crazy because they had not heard the news yet Scott McDonald and others had already been freed. I only share that because I think the question we're about to ask is really, really important. And the question is simple. It's something maybe you've wrestled with. What is already and not yet in your life? What is the thing? And this, this could be positive. This could be a dream. This could be a calling. This could be a relationship or a, or a faith step or a challenge. Like what's already not yet in your life? That you know, God, I know you're starting this good thing and I'm just gonna keep engaging it, keep praying about it, keep leaning in because there's a, there's a, a fulfillment on the other side. I may not even see it in this life. I think about our church sometimes in that way, right? There's, there's people who prayed for a church like this to exist in this community, maybe even hundreds of years before you ever came here. And yet here we are, they didn't see that. But what's already not yet in your life? And, and that may be some brokenness. You may have to get real about your life. You may have to get honest. You may have to stop hiding, stop covering stuff up and just be real and be transparent. Maybe that's with a person or a counselor or a pastor. I don't know who it is but what's already and not yet in your life. Because the next step we're about to take of celebrating communion together is the bridge between those two things, right? Communion sometimes is hard for me because I get trapped into the thinking that this is all there is. Like if the best God has to give me is this small cup of grape juice and this little slice of Panera bread, is that it? Like is, is this life, is, is what I see and touch and feel and experience, is that all there is? But Revelation 21 over and over again wants to remind you and I that that's not true, that this is not all that there is, even though what we experience now is a glimpse of what there is. If you read through other parts of Revelation, there's literally massive feasts and banquets a part of this new heaven and new earth. I love to eat more than any of you, but like to me, that, that's a perfect example of communion. This is foretaste of a greater supper that's to, that's to come, a greater banquet that's to come. And so again, what do you do in the middle? Embrace, extend. Embrace and extend. I'd love to pray for us and we're gonna celebrate this meal together. Jesus, thank you for times like this where we get to quiet ourselves and to listen to your words. Listen to what you have to say. Listen to how your spirit wants to lead and guide and prompt us to, to a better life. I thank you for this revelation John's given us that you actually have for us so much more in your kingdom, so much more that we have yet to experience. And, and God, help us to not settle for the middle. Help us to not settle for brokenness or patterns or even temporary pleasure that, that comes sometimes at the expense of eternal, eternal things. Thank you that this letter and even communion is a reminder of that the growing in you is actually just becoming who we really are. And so today, God, I pray you guide our time, guide our feet, guide our minds as you want to speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name.